0: Good morning, I have a vivid memory of standing up here and smashing the last lectern (laughs) and I'm paying the price by preaching from this wobbly thing. Well let's pray that God would speak to us from his word, would you join me in prayer? Father God thank you for the scriptures, thank you that your heart is to reveal more of yourself to us this morning and we come to you asking for that, we want to know you better. And we want to follow you closer. We want to know what it's like to have your joy in our life. So please, Lord, take what I've prepared and make it useful to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, I want you to know that we've been looking at the letter from Paul to the Philippians And we've been looking at it with one particular idea in our minds from week to week. And it's simply this. How can we know joy in our lives? Because it strikes us as odd and strange that Paul, who's writing his letter in prison, to a church in which he actually founded in Philippi and suffered while he was there, should be so insistent in almost every chapter on telling them to rejoice or to know the joy of the Lord. And he's rather like a dog with a bone. He won't let go of this idea. And if you were paying attention when this chapter was just read, chapter three, you'll have noticed it begins with the words, rejoice in the Lord. So he's back onto this topic. In fact, you might want to have in front of you Philippians chapter three, page 1180, if you're using a church Bible, but if you're using an app, I have no idea what page it is. Doesn't really matter, does it? Rejoice in the Lord, says Paul. And then he acknowledges, because he's obviously away, he's written this many times to the Philippians already, he's getting a bit repetitive. So he says, it's no trouble for me to write the same thing to you. Now when a truth is repeated in Scripture, it's generally, I think, for one of two reasons, or both of these reasons. One for emphasis to make sure we don't miss a point. We all know that kind of technique. If you go on saying the same thing again and again and again, maybe it'll be heard. And the second reason is not just for emphasis. It's maybe because the truth that is being revealed or the instruction we're being given or the command we're being given is actually hard to put into practice. And therefore, we need to be taught. It needs to be ingrained into us because it's going to be challenging, and actually, surprisingly enough, getting joy into our life and keeping it there is incredibly challenging. Week by week by week, we've been looking at some of the habits that Paul says we could include, which will build up our joy, but we've had to acknowledge each week there are other kind of destructive habits that could have a place in our lives, which will make the joy dissipate or disappear. We're back in Chapter 3 in the joy restoration business. And I suspect that much of what I have to say for many of us is truth you already know. But we've lost sight of. And we need to put the polish back. In fact, I've brought a little aid with me in my pocket. I don't know if you'll see this clearly enough. But uh, I discovered this at home when I was rooting around. If you look at this side of what is in fact a silver sugar bowl, I think. It looks very dull and tarnished and not up to much. You wouldn't get a lot of joy looking at that. If you look at this side, ah, it's all polished. And uh, it's much more attractive and and much better. And the thing is, in in a way, what I'm doing this morning is the joy restoration business like that. Underneath, we've got each of us, if you're a follower of Christ, you have what I'm talking about this morning already on you but it may have tarnished, it, it may have lost its gloss. When I was polishing this early this morning, it required a certain amount of elbow grease. Well, the first point I have to make this morning to restoring joy, I'm really rather happy about this, is it's not elbow grease you need, yes, it's elbow grace. <laughs> what a joyful lot we are but it's there in the passage. Now, grace is something we're inherently suspicious of because it involves being given something for nothing. And um, we don't easily take that, it's kind of, we're taught there's no such thing as a free lunch, but grace tells you, yes, there is such a thing as a free lunch. I was trying to think back to times where I have known, as it happened, that that grace was poured into my life. It's not a word we often use in everyday use, but let me give you a couple of illustrations, well, a few more than that, actually. When when I was 19 years old, I was driving along the M4 outside of Swindon, and I was going from Exeter University to central London, where I lived, and I was driving a, a Triumph Herald, and it was pretty old and ancient. And I can remember distinctly, it was a very loud bang, and the car slewed to the right, and I was in the slow lane of the motorway, and it turned upside down, and it came to a halt with the kind of noise of grating fingernails on a blackboard. You might never have heard that, but it's not pleasant. And when the car came to a halt, this energy took over, and a sense of self-preservation, I've got to get out of this car. And I undid my safety belt, and landed on my head. Uh, don't say we can tell. And um, I, I got out of this... I don't know how I got out, but it was actually a crushed window. And then I thought, I don't want to be run over on the motorway. And I saw this red car parked on the hard shoulder of the motorway um, about 100 yards away from me. And I, I crossed the motorway, which is not something I recommend doing, And uh, walked up to this red car, and this man was shaking inside, and he was white. And the first thing he said was, you're dead. And I said, well, actually, I'm not, no. And he said, I saw exactly what happened. And then he said, I'll take you home. Where do you live? And he said it in that order. Now, I didn't just hop in his car and drive off. An ambulance came, and they went looking for... The body and I had to say it's me, and uh, it was all very dramatic. But the thing, the thing is, the thing is, it was just purely an act of grace. There was I did nothing to deserve that guy's kindness. There was absolutely nothing in it for him. Or a less uh, dramatic example of I was spending some time a few years ago, was some people I hardly knew. I'd been given their name and address by a friend who had rung them up and had said, um, I've got some friends called Rupert and Liz, would you like to um, have them stay with you in your lovely home in South Africa? And um, they very kindly said yes. And on about day three, when we'd been living in their house and enjoying their food and enjoying everything, just live like family really, I was awake in the middle of the night and I literally was scratching my head and, saying to myself, and saying to God actually, I don't get this. Why are these people being so kind to us? They don't know us, they've never met us before, they're never gonna see us again. There's absolutely nothing in it for them. And it, it was one of those moments where I felt that God was saying, Rupert, this is grace. This is, their love for you is like my love for you. It's just given, it's a gift. Now, as I reread through those examples this morning, I thought they were rather dramatic. But actually, every day, I know grace. And so do you in your life, but you might not recognize it. Every day, I leave my breakfast cereal bowl, mug, etc., on top of the side of the kitchen and don't empty the dishwasher. It's pure grace that I don't get a rocket. It's grace that someone else empties the dishwasher. When you go and get your refreshment, at the end of a service and someone serves you coffee and tea. It's just grace that they do that. They're not getting paid for it, there's nothing in it for them, it's just a free gift. And Paul is writing to the believers right at the beginning of his letter, his opening words were, grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. And this was incredibly important to Paul because you think back to his own story, of how God captured his attention. You remember, he was walking along a road, or maybe he was on a donkey, I have no idea, but he was going along a road, journeying with the intention of destroying the church, with a specific idea that he would wipe out the Christians, take them from their home and kill them. He was an ethnic cleanser. And God stops him in his tracks and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm Jesus. You're persecuting. Go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. And this was the last thing in the world that Paul expected to happen to him for all so many reasons. God stepped in to help him. God opened his eyes to know who he was. God did this purely out of an overflow of his love. Not because of anything that Paul had done. Now, you probably know this already. You know, it's kind of like part of our Christian heritage, our DNA. But we need to remind ourselves what a big deal this is. And as I was reflecting on it, I was thinking, this is too big a leap to make in one step. So here's a stepping stone, just a little imaginary exercise. Think of each one of us to think of someone that you really respect and admire and you'd love to meet someone at the top of their game. It'll be different for each of us. You know, if you're a scientist, might be a scientist, might be a sports person, a musician, a politician, an entertainer, those two things don't generally go together. An author, an inspiring personality, um, a monarch, just someone that you really look up to. World famous, let's say. And let's just imagine, just imagine that they, hear somehow that you want to meet them and let's imagine they interrupt their schedule they put a line through their diary they fly into Cambridge they hire a car and they're waiting for you outside the door at the end of this church service and they say come on let's go and get some lunch I hear you want to meet I'd love to give you lunch and they don't charge you for lunch and they don't charge you their traveling expenses and they don't ask for anything back in return. They just do it because they know it'll give you pleasure. Well, you think that's extremely unlikely. I can't see whoever it was you're thinking of doing it. But if they did, it would bring joy to your heart. But I'm talking about something much bigger than that. I'm talking about God himself. If you like, clearing his diary stepping into the path of your life and inviting you to spend time with him. And of course, that's mind-boggling. The God of this whole universe, the God whose power is infinite before the world was formed, he was. And he formed the world. The God who, for example, can still a storm with a word. And we know he can do that because he did it. The God who, if he wants to, can make the ground open up and swallow people up. We know he can do that because he did it. The God who can heal with a touch or a word. And we know he can do that because he did it. The God who, if he wanted to, could take us all out for a picnic on Jesus Green and feed us and a few thousand to boot off the back of a couple of sandwiches, fried fish and chips kind of thing, loaves and bread. The God who, if he wanted to, could cause you to die through worms. We know because he did that to someone. And the God who could bring you back to life with the word if he wanted to. This is the God who steps into your life because he wants to. Not because of anything you've done. And it should, it should bring joy to us to think about that. I remember a few years ago, I invited a, a wonderful man called Pastor Lawrence from Zambia to come and speak to us as a congregation. And he told a story about how one day, he'd been driving along the road in Zambia, where he lived, and he was so overcome with joy at the thought of what God had done for him in his life that he parked on the hard shoulder and did a dance. And, and he did this little dance here at the front of church. And you know, wow! And do you know what? Something very strange happened. The whole congregation smiled and looked full of joy. For just a second, our English reserve slump. Now, not asking we all do a dance, but if you know nothing of the joy of the Lord, if it brings you no joy to think that God cares for you and loves you and you haven't contributed to that, then you're missing out big time. A way to restore joy is to remember, just remember what God has done for you. And there are a few things that Paul mentions in passing, so I'll mention them in passing, to make sure that we polish this joy and don't lose it in verse three. When we worship by the Spirit of God, some people wonder why we spend so so much time praising the Lord. Well, one of the things is we're expressing what the Holy Spirit has put in our heart, that we're grateful to him. And it's important we don't just kind of bluff our way through these times of praise. I know we won't always come to church just absolutely ready to go with it. But when the Holy Spirit captures our hearts, we will want to go with it. And it's important that we don't go on autopilot or drift into kind of dream mode or slump into a kind of sing-along mode. It's engaging with the living God. It's elbow grace, if you like. And secondly, says, Paul, in verse three, we glory in Christ Jesus. That means we magnify the Lord together. We focus on him. If you like, we big him up, but you can never big him up because he's bigger than the biggest God you could ever make him to be. And at this point, Paul issues a warning. And he says there is a way you can undermine all this joy that could be yours and it's a trap that we could fall into. And if you do, your joy will disappear in a flash. And it's what happens when you put your confidence in the wrong place and trust in yourself or your own actions or your heritage or what you've done. Now we need to look a bit carefully at verses two and three because it's not immediately obvious what Paul is talking about, though it is obvious that he's irate. There's a kind of change in tone as he says, watch out. I'm going to read from the Living Bible. It it translates it rather well. Watch out for those wicked men, dangerous dogs I call them, who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For it isn't the cutting of our bodies that makes us children of God. It's worshipping him with our spirits. That's the only true circumcision. We Christians glory in what Christ Jesus has done for us and realize we're helpless to save ourselves. Now, Paul is particularly severe on this group, the circumcision party. And when we understand what they're saying and when we remember Paul's former life, we can understand why he's severe on them. In short, they are putting their confidence in the wrong place. Here's a dictionary definition of what confidence is. It's a feeling or belief that one can have faith in or rely on someone or something, as in, with every confidence in the board. Well, the circumcision party, it would appear, one has to guess a bit because no one's absolutely sure, but they put their confidence on the fact that they had been circumcised, the fact that they fulfilled a certain ritual requirement the fact that they had done something. And they were thinking to themselves, and maybe they were trying to infiltrate the church in Philippi and get this point across, that in order to be right in God's presence, you too had to be circumcised. You had to belong to this group. And this really grates with Paul because it was exactly what he'd been set free from. And in verses 4 to 6, the Living Bible says, uh, transliterating it, Yet if anyone ever had reason to hope that he could save himself, that would be me. If others could be saved by what they are, certainly I could. For I went through the Jewish initiation ceremony when I was eight years old. Eight days old, sorry. Eight days old, having been born into a pure-blooded Jewish home that was a branch of the original Benjamin family. So I was a real Jew if ever there was one. And what's more, I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to every Jewish law and custom. And sincere? Yes, so much so that I greatly persecuted the church and I tried to obey every Jewish rule and regulation right down to the very last point. Now sometimes when I've read that and read this part of Philippians, I've kind of kicked it into touch because I've said to myself, oh well, Paul, you don't meet Pharisees these days. There really aren't many people who would be going around town talking about circumcision as a way of life. And yet, as I've thought about it more, this danger lurks for all of us. I think of a a friend, a man called Jeremy, who came to talk to me at the end of a service that I took some years ago uh, in Salisbury. Jeremy was in the army. He, He was a colonel in the army. And as part of his life in the army, he'd been... Um, living in a place for three years at a time and then would move on and move on and move on. And his wife was a very keen Christian. And his wife would take him to whatever church it was. And Jeremy would go, um, sort of out of obedience and kindness to his wife. And uh, at the end of this particular service, he came up to me and he was shaking, shaking with anger, really, and also crying at the same time, which is kind of unusual for a grown up man and a colonel in the army. And as he was shaking, he, said, he told me his story. And he said, the thing is, Rupert, I'm really angry this morning because i realized this morning for the first time that over like 20 years, I've been going with my wife to church. And I've sat in different churches. And he said, in fact, I've been made church warden in three different churches probably because I look neat and my, you know, I'm, I'm an army man and I've got polished shoes and they kind of think I'll do the trick. But he said, you know, I've been to all these churches and until today I had no idea it was about Jesus Christ. I had no idea that there's a relationship with Jesus and a way into God's presence in Jesus. And he said, I'm so cross about all those wasted years and you see, what he was living out of all those years, somewhere, though he may not have processed it quite like this, was the idea, if I just do these things, I'll be right with God. And somewhere was this kind of ceiling of, of what he thought reality was, which was, you know, church going, will do the trick. Or I think of a conversation that I had with uh, a friend who lives in Ely at the moment. And I first met him a few years ago, and he introduced himself, and he told me his story. And he, he said, I... I I'm grieving, really, from the death of my wife. I haven't got over it. But I've come to live in Ely, and I'm looking for something I know I haven't found yet. But he said, every Sunday, I go to a service in the cathedral because I like the smell of hymn books. <clears throat> he literally said that. And he said, I- I'm just going, and I-, I haven't found what I'm looking for. But I somehow think if I just... Do this enough, it'll be okay. But it won't. It'll only be okay, and your and my life will only be okay if we're connecting with Jesus and relying on what he's done for us, not what we're doing really for him. When we put our confidence in him. It can't be an accident that the words grace and joy come from the same Greek word. One is charis, and the other is kara. Joy and grace go together. So, stop and just think for a moment. Do you allow yourself the pleasure of knowing that God loves you when you've done nothing to contribute to this? The guy who stopped to help me when my car crashed He didn't say when I got alongside him, Rupert, you were driving so well, I'm so impressed, that I feel I owe you a lift home. Nor did he say, it's your fault that you're in the car crash because you're driving a car with a ropey tire that just blew out. He he just said, I'll take you home. I contributed nothing apart from smashing the car. You contribute nothing to what God has done for you, apart from the fact his love overflows for you. And he does that with pleasure. It brings him joy. It should bring us joy. So that's the very first. I know it's rather basic, but it could just be like that silver pot I've just shown you. It needs polishing. Okay, the second source of joy is this. The joy that comes from knowing the difference between treasure and trash the joy that comes from knowing the difference between treasure and trash. And the thing is, your view about what is treasure and what is trash changes completely when God's at the heart of your life. That was Paul's experience, that's your experience, it's my experience. And Paul can't use any more forceful language than what he does use. In fact, it's so forceful that nearly every single translation waters it down because it's too strong, but I've picked the translation that doesn't uh, from the message version, verse two and seven. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important have gone from my life, compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ as my master firsthand. Everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant, dog dung, I've dumped it all in the trash. That's precisely what he says, actually. A fault line lies between what the world thinks of treasure and what God's people think of as treasure. And it always has. This fault line's always been there. The world is constantly feeding us with the impression that unless you've experienced this, whatever this is, a week in the Bahamas, driving this type of car, wearing these kind of clothes, then you haven't lived. I think that's that sort of way of thinking is behind every advert that comes into my life, whether I like it or not, isn't it? But this way of thinking that says, um, unless you've experienced this, you haven't lived, that's not new. That didn't come with advertising. It, it, it's always been there. John, in his first letter, puts it like this. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. And it just isolates you from him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. A friend told me a story of a conversation that he had soon after he became a follower of Christ. One of his friends came up to him and challenged him and said, you're so missing out. Now you're a Christian. You don't have the experience of many sexual partners that I've got. You don't have the experience of drugs that I'm having. When we go out for a great night out and you don't, well, you're so missing out. And he replied like this. I think it's rather clever. He said, I've got all the sexual partners I want. I've had all the drugs I want. I drink all the alcohol I want to drink. And then he went on to explain, in just a non-combative way, why would I want to go out and destroy a marriage by having sex with anyone other than my wife? Why would I want to lose self-control and get drunk? Why would I want to go into substance abuse? No, I really am not the one missing out. And I know it's difficult to say that kind of thing without sounding priggish, but what he's saying is with the Spirit of God in you, what you value changes, doesn't it? There is far greater treasure and greater pleasure in living closer to God the Father than can ever be found in any alternative. That's the point. Look to the right place for joy in your life. Put confidence in the right place when finding joy. And it's not that there's a prohibition on other lovely things which have nothing to do with God, but the way uh, to make sure that we're not categorizing things wrong is to thank God for them too. They're not alternatives, but on the number one spot, is treasure is found in God's company. The third way, the third way of polishing joy in your life is this, and it's revealed in verse 10 and verse 12 of this chapter. Finding out the joy of getting closer to God and going forward with God. Or to use the two phrases used in this passage by Paul, the joy of pressing in and pressing on. In verse 10, he says this, I want to know Christ better and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And in verse 12, he says, I press on. And verse 14, he rubs it in. I'm straining towards what lies ahead. Now, I'm going to just press pause at this point and and challenge us to think, is that how you think? Really? Or in our minds, do we have this kind of paradigm where we think we have this explosion when we first come to Christ and we suddenly know him better and then well we just live in the light of that if you were to draw a graph for yourself I'd be so interested to see it but I won't but and on the bottom axis you put time and then you of plot how you think your life is going to go in relationship with God and your knowledge of God what kind of graph would you be drawing would it have spiked some years ago would the arrival of children have made it more difficult to know God, say? Would being promoted at work have meant God has kind of... Do you imagine a plateau from here? Well, that's not what Paul imagines. Paul says, I want to know Christ better every day. And that's how it's meant to be. But so often it isn't. Uh, Again, I I met someone when we had one of our Alpha Suppers a few years ago, and they said, which I thought was rather condescending to me, um, oh, I did that charismatic thing back in the 60s. Did you? And I didn't say any of the many things I might have said, but if you're thinking, well, I did that way back, something's gone wrong. So what is the template you think you have in place in order to grow? Because I'm... Telling you joy comes from knowing Jesus better every day, every week, every month, every year. But it's not going to happen unless you really want it to happen. I am not a fisherman, but I have known fishermen who say a day not spent fishing is a wasted day. And I think what Paul is saying is a day not spent drawing closer to Jesus is a wasted day. I'm actually very grateful as I was cycling in and kind of reviewing this sermon, I was thinking, you know, one of the wonderful things about HT is actually so many people here would say, I agree with that. And that is my intention. And that is the profile of how I want to live my life. And I want to say, good, (laughs) God loves it. You know, if we were to pray every morning, Lord Jesus, this is a day I need to know you better. Do you think that's a prayer that Jesus would answer? I don't think he'd say, oh, not again. It's Rupert again. He wants to know me better. I think of course he'd want that. And of course he'll say, yeah, we can, we can arrange that. And that, that's, that's what we need to start with. And there are certain very basic things that we need to have in place which will significantly increase the chances of us getting to know him better. I mean, just simple things like belonging to a small group coming to church as you're doing, to listen to sermons, learning from other people who are followers of Christ. But the important thing is, again, don't let that revert to just works because simply coming to church won't do it. Simply going to a small group won't do it. God has many ways of speaking into our life. And if it is that you hear God saying something to you in church, act upon it. If you hear God saying something to you through your small group, act upon it. If you hear the Holy Spirit saying something to you as you read the scriptures, act upon it. There's a very simple but cruel test that each of us can apply. Well, it's not really cruel, but it's a very simple test that you can apply to see if you're still on the learning curve or whether you've taken your L plates off. And if you're a disciple, you should be on the learning curve because that's what it means. Okay, here's a simple test. When was the last time you repented of anything? Do you know what that means? When was the last time you actually changed your mind about anything? When was the last time God was able to say to you, in whatsoever way, it may have been through a sermon, it may have been through a friend, it may have been through the scriptures, what you're doing in this area is not right. Change. And when was the last time you said yes, Lord? I'm sorry, I want to go in your direction. Because that is the proof that you're still a learner. And you're still getting closer and closer to Christ. And you know what's so tricky about this, and deceptive about this, is you have no idea until the Holy Spirit stirs up in you of the danger that you walk yourself into. If you stuff your fingers in your ears and you become hard-hearted, you say... I'm gonna go my own way, thanks. It's so much more attractive, it's so much less work, everyone else is going that way. And you walk yourself off God's path thinking wrongly that you can someday get back onto his path at a day of your choosing. And that is not what scripture teaches. It, It teaches that it's like walking into quicksand and you're most likely to get trapped in it. And the joy, of course the joy will disappear. But it's not meant to be that way. And Paul says, I press in. You know, I want to know Christ better. But let me just warn you, if you do pray that prayer, the way God answer it, answers it will not be like a pleasure cruise. Because it, odds on it will involve suffering. Because Paul tells them, I want to know Christ better and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering and I don't know much about grammar, but I was taught many years ago, a conjunction joins things together. And and is a conjunction. And these things are joined together. Knowing Christ better and the power of his resurrection, which sounds great, is joined with the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And resurrection and suffering, resurrection generally comes after death, which sounds like suffering. But that's our ambition. We want to know Christ better. Do you? and then secondly in this little section forgetting what's behind I strain towards what's ahead of me I press on press forward for God's next in your Christian life not just reveling in the past and if you want another check as well as when you last repented here's another check in verse 17 what kind of example are you setting just think about that in your lifestyle, if someone can see it, and believe me, someone can see it, what kind of example are you setting? Is it consistent with what you profess to believe? Well, if it is, joy will be the result. Now, friends, by a happy coincidence, Commitment Sunday is just around the corner. And one of the ways to make sure that we're not drifting, but we're growing, that we're still disciples, is it's a private thing. And it'll only be of use if you you take it seriously and I take it seriously, it's to offer God the chance to review your walk with Him. You know, in a few weeks' time, March 10th, we'll have Commitment Sunday, and there's a little card you've been sent, and it's inviting each of us to commit to following Christ as best we can in this coming year. And the reason we do this primarily is because I don't want us to drift. And I know unless I review my life with God, of course I'll drift. And it, it's just a simple thing. You know, do I want Jesus to be Lord of my life this year? Do I want to build up God's family this year? Will I contribute financially to what's going on here? And I ha- actually wondered whether there might be some people and you're thinking, you know, this is a wake up call today. I, I really need to make a fresh stand for Jesus Christ. It, it's, I don't know why I've drifted but it, it's happened. And I want to say to you, if it would be useful for you in doing that to get baptized again, to reaffirm your baptism, come and talk to me at the end of a service because in very short time, I think in a week's time, we have a baptism service. And one of the things that baptism is, is a, a public statement of an inward belief, an outward statement. I can't re-baptize you, but you can reaffirm your faith in Jesus Christ. And if it would be helpful, Uh, Just meet with me and talk to me and and we can get together and maybe it's just time to make a fresh start. Okay, last point in just a second, just to give you the heading. Joy comes from remembering how the story ends. That our citizenship is in heaven. God has a great future prepared for us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that joy is one of your gifts. And we pray that you would connect us with your joy again. We know that your heart isn't really to clout us over the head pointing out our shortcomings, but we need to acknowledge where we fall short. And we want to get close to you. Thank you that Paul had irrepressible joy And we we pray, Lord, that when we hear you speak, we choose to obey. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would release joy in us, sincere joy, not kind of froth and nonsense, but relying on you and knowing that your love for us is a gift. Come and release these truths to us afresh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.